I wonder if you folks realize just how much you have here that is very precious. You're not the largest congregation in the land by any means, but there's something so precious about this fellowship. I wonder if other visiting speakers sense it too. I hope they do. But you're close-knit, you love each other, you eat together, you pray together, you worship together. You come together so many times in the week. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. No wonder you're bound together. Well, this morning, there's a word that I was rather thrilled when the Lord led me to this one. So let's pray first. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and powerful. You've already experienced its power in our lives. We know the gospel is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. And we thank you for bringing us out of nature's darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you for setting us free from the burden of sin. We thank you for making us new in our risen reigning Lord. And Father, we ask this morning for your Holy Spirit's help for me as I speak and for all of us as we think and respond. Have your way, Lord, among us. Do something special here this morning. In Jesus' name. We're going to the book of Joshua this morning. Uh, Joshua is a wonderful book, I'm sure you'll agree. There's a lot of very helpful things in the book of Joshua for the Christian believer. Let's read chapter 3, first of all. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests or Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Then Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hevites, Perizzites, Gergeshites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, Set foot in the Jordan. The water flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So, when the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet, 
As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. It is very obvious from what we've just read that this was a very, very significant moment in the life of the Israelites. Remember, they'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were in the wilderness for one single reason. The sin of unbelief and disobedience. Because 40 years before, Moses sent in spies and the majority of the spies came back and said, Oh, that place is so well defended, we couldn't possibly take it, we mustn't risk going in there. And only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a different report and said, yes, yes, it's well defended. Of course it's well defended, but if the Lord is pleased with us, he will give it to us. Let's go. But the majority vote carried. So much for democracy. Don't dare allow it in the church, will you? Here is God saying to his people, I have brought you out from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, from a dreadful life. I've brought you so far, I've brought you to the Red Sea, part of the waters, a miracle for, for you people to get through safely into dry land. And you're going to have a long time wandering around in this dry land until you learn that I take disobedience and unbelief very, very seriously. Here they are after 40 years. The older generation has died off. The younger generation is standing on the verge of Jordan. Go back for a minute to chapter 1 of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. This was such a significant moment. After all these wee years, weary years of waiting and waiting and waiting, such frustrations of disappointment, they're on the very edge of something gloriously different, gloriously new. The fulfillment of God's promise of a land of their own. And chapter 2 uh, well, chapter 11, verse 11, um, we find that the, the people are told by, by the, uh, to go through the, the, the Joshua order, the officers of the people, go through the camp, tell the people, get your supplies ready, and so on. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. So it was preparation time, and they were about to witness a tremendous miracle. Chapter 2 begins by telling us that Joshua, son of Nun, sent, secretly sent two spies in to view the land. 
And of course they had to conceal themselves as much as they could and they found lodging in the house of this prostitute Rahab and when the king of Jericho heard that some people from Israel had been seen roaming around in Jericho he was very disturbed and ordered that they be found and arrested but they were hidden by Rahab under the flax on the roof of her house and she did tell lies to protect them from the situation anyhow Rahab actually said something to them that was incredibly encouraging she told these men I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has been has fallen upon us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you that was a tremendously encouraging thing for the spies to hear and carry back to Joshua. Already in Jericho, the people were panic-stricken. They'd heard of what God did 40 years before at the Red Sea, miraculous work for the benefit of the Israelite people. And here are these Israelites, the next generation, on their doorstep, uncomfortably near. Well, well. The key verse in this chapter, I think you will have spotted already. There it is in verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Last Sunday, when I was with you last Sunday morning, I was very much aware of or I've spoken about it again this morning, the togetherness that is here in place in this little group. There is something special here. And I began thinking about revival. And I thought, well, every revival in this country, of Scotland, I've seen many, every revival has to begin somewhere. What if the Lord was planning to begin a revival in Moodysburg? Now, I'm not giving you a prophetic word. I'm not saying this is a prophetic word that's going to happen. But it could happen. The distinct possibility. When God gives revival, it has to begin somewhere. And it spreads. Hmm, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. So let's look at some detail here. The Israelites were on a way that was new to them. In verse 4, they were told, You have never been this way before. Well, it was a very special, unique moment for them. But the fact of the matter is that these words apply to all of us every day of our life. You have never been this way before. Many of our days are similar to the days that have gone before them, but they're all different in some respect. And we never, never know the moment when God is going to break through in some special power and some special blessing. So really, instead of kind of, <laughs> I shouldn't say this to you because I'm sure you don't do it, and some people drag their way through life, I hope I don't, um, but instead of just kind of going through the routine because we did the whole that yesterday and last week and the month before, why not have a sense of anticipation? Tomorrow could be a new day for the fellowship as a whole or for individuals here this morning, the Lord doing something wonderful, something new, something that they had never experienced before. 
There was the presence they must follow. Because they were told, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests or Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and you are to follow. That's the signal to move. The presence they must follow. Why do we call it the presence? Well, these priests were carrying what was known as the Ark of the Covenant, and I think you will know that the Ark was really just a wooden box, but a rather special one, a gold-plated wooden chest containing two blocks of stone. But the stones were special as well, because the stones carried the words of the Ten Commandments. Oh, and that came to symbolise for the Israelites the presence of God in their midst. That's why when the ark was captured at one point, they were really so upset. Because the enemy had captured the symbol of God's presence. It didn't sound good news. And here they were seeing the ark about to be carried across the river Jordan, and the orders were, follow it. The presence they must follow. They must follow that which carried the word of God. Now, I know you people have a great love for the Word of God, that's obvious. But let me remind you of one or two things that are there in Psalm 119. Where the psalmist writes in verse 89, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. This book I'm looking at and reading from this morning is the Word of God and it stands eternal. It is not here today and gone tomorrow, like some publications like the Independent Newspaper. It's here eternally, the Word of God. The same psalm, verse 105. Some of us learned these words in Scripture Union. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We all find that. When we open our Bible and the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we're seeing light and life's journey. God is showing us how to live, where to go, what to do. And again, in, in verse uh, 130, where in the same psalm, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now I think I've said to you before that I have been disturbed in recent years to get the impression in certain circles that some Christians are very easygoing in relation to the Bible. At home, they read it when they feel like it. And days may pass, or weeks may pass, when they don't feel like it, so they don't read it. It's not a good way to live. We need to read this every day of our life. We need fresh light for each new day. So I want to encourage you to take time. It doesn't have to be a great long time, but take time, some time, to read some scripture every day. Because it's like that Ark of the Covenant. It's showing us where to go, the way to go. The presence they must follow was the presence of the Word of God. The guidance they would find would come. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. They would find guidance as they followed that which carried the word of God. And God, both Old Testament and New Testament, promises his people guidance. Now, some of us actually find guidance, and have found guidance over the years, quite difficult to be sure 
to be sure of what God was actually guiding us to do. But to see in the Old Testament we have, for example, in Psalm number 32, verse 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God says, I want to do this, and you need me to do this. So get switched on. Expect my guidance. Seek my guidance. James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God and it will be given to him. A promise. A promise of guidance. I ask for it every day because I don't trust my own wisdom. You trust your own wisdom. I don't trust my own wisdom. Wisdom is a very, very valuable thing. It's knowing what to do with knowledge. You can have bags of knowledge and not know what to do with it. Not much good to you. We need wisdom. We need guidance. Claim it. Read the word of God every day. Claim the guidance of God every day. And then, what the Lord may also reveal as occasion arises, these are occasional things, like the Lord giving us a dream or a vision or a prophetic word or whatever, these are extras. But the key thing is the word of God. The presence that must follow, the guidance they would find, and we also read here of the reverence they should feel. Ah, oh. hmm. Keep a distance of about a thousand yards, that's about half a mile between you and the ark. Don't go near it. Now, one of the great difficulties some of us have in the Christian life is getting a proper balance between things that can get out of balance. Some churches, if you see a church, especially in America, called Word Baptist Church, <laughs> you know before you go in what to expect. It's all word and probably not a much mention of the Holy Spirit. Holy Scripture, yes, absolutely 100%. Don't expect too much of the Holy Spirit. But of course, if you go to the opposite extreme and you find some charismatic groups, well, we don't need the Bible so much now. God speaks to us directly. Oh, really? That's good. So it speaks to me directly as well. But I still need the Bible. So balance is important. Getting the right balance between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And equally, it's important that we get the right balance between intimacy and reverence. Some people are reverent in a very quaint, eccentric kind of way. I hope I'm not very in the towards you this morning. But I never can understand why some Christians almost, always invariably drop their voice to a whisper when they pray. And of course, if you go to a prayer meeting where they're praying like that, I can't hear a word you're saying, so I can't say amen to it. So what's the good of praying together if we can't hear what another person is saying? So we don't want any kind of phony kind of reverence. We want real reverence. Reverence that is blended with intimacy, knowing God as our heavenly daddy, and loving the Lord Jesus as our saviour and friend and Lord. Intimacy and reverence belong together. It's not either one or the other. But there should be room for a healthy respect for God. No matter how intimate we are with our Heavenly Father, and He wants us to be intimate, we still must remember that He is the living God of all the earth. After all, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this about worship and what should mark our worship. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God 
is a consuming fire. The loving Father, yes, that encourages the intimacy. A consuming fire, that encourages the reverence. Keep the balance right. They were in a way that was new to them. Secondly, they would see wonders done by the Lord among them. They were being told in advance that the following day supernatural power was going to break through, really break through, in a big way. And that's what revival is all about. Revival is when God suddenly starts doing things that are way beyond the normal experience in the church and through the church. When people don't go to work, when they can't face work even, when people hide in ditches or barns or whatever they can, when they break down and fall on the floor and uh, they're shattered, they're broken before God. That's revival. God is showing us. God is showing us here. I've got more power than you have. Down you go. And I'll tell you when to get up again. Oh, people being convicted deeply. People who were good living. Christians. But God comes and he puts us in our face. You know, we sang that wonderful little song this morning. Fill this place with your glory. But boy, when God fills a place with his glory, it sure does change. What about the dedication of the temple in Solomon's time? The glory of God fell and the priests couldn't, couldn't do their priestly stuff. They couldn't. They were put out of action. I wouldn't mind being put out of action. No, I love preaching. I wouldn't mind God stopping me. If revival came, I would say, yes, Lord, this is much better than my preaching. Cool. Yes. They would see wonders done by the Lord among them. And interestingly, in that context, in this very point of their story, we read about the ministry that would be recognized in a new way. You see, for 40 years, almost the entire period they'd spent in the desert, they'd had the same old Moses whom they'd known from the days in Egypt. Ah, they really trusted him. Well, they didn't always trust him, but most of the time they did. They were secure up to a certain extent. Because they had the same experienced leader, Moses, leading them. But Moses had died. God had taken Moses home. And now it was Joshua who was leading them. Well, he'd been around for a long time too. He was one of the spies sent in 40 years before. But now, now, the Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Joshua, you're different from Moses, that's obvious. But I'm going to be with you to the same extent as I was with Moses. Why is that written in the scripture? I'll begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. Well, God's people, be it the Israelites in the Old Testament or the Christians in the New Testament, we are not a leaderless bunch of people. When a church tries to be a leaderless bunch of people, it's in trouble. Because God's intention is that his people should have leaders. We all need leaders. Oh. Now, a leader's job is a lonely one sometimes. I know that from experience. It can be a very lonely place. You are the same as all the rest in one sense. 
You're a member of the fellowship. You're a fellow believer with all these people in the congregation. But God has called you to a special role in that situation. And inevitably, it puts a certain gap between leaders and people. And Joshua was told, I'm going to begin to exalt you in the eyes of the people. In other words, the people will begin to say, you know what? Joshua's okay. He's different from Moses, yes, but he's doing a great job. He's God's man for this hour, and that's what matters. Now, I think you've got two elders, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the fellowship here. But one of them happens to be very much up front because of the role he plays. Now, referring obviously to Graham. And you know, especially in last Sunday and again this morning, I have been really blessed in praying with this man before the service started. Graham is a man of prayer, you know that. But he carries with Bill the responsibility of leadership in the fellowship. So honour honour them both. And then Graham also has the role of leading the worship. Some so-called worship leaders, all they have to do is lead the singing. But not Graham. He leads the worship. There's a big difference. A worship leader to lead worship needs to be worshipping himself or herself. You can't lead worship if you're not worshipping yourself. And you're blessed in having up front on a Sunday morning a man who is both a man of prayer and a gifted, anointed leader of worship. Honour your elders. Hebrews is a little bit too much for some Christians because Hebrews says, remember your elders, and it also says, submit to their authority. But that's all part of God's plan. The church is not a democracy. The church is a theocracy. That means a fellowship where God rules. Democracy means people rule. We don't need that in the church. It's dangerous. We need God's rule. So, that's a word in passing. I'll begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. A ministry that would be recognised as part of God's provision for the blessing of his people. Then there was a message that was received and it concerned, first of all, the presence of God, the living God among them. Verse 10. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. The living God is among you. The living God is to be treated as the living God. Sometimes we've touched on this already. Sometimes the relationship between God and his people is a bit flabby and a bit shaky. And we forget sometimes that he is no less a person than the living God of all the earth. He has a living son. Our Lord Jesus, King and Head of the Church, is the living Lord. That's why we much prefer an empty cross to a crucifix. Because a crucifix suggests that Jesus is still dead and he isn't. The living Lord is very much alive. What did they say to John and the elder Patmos? I'm the living one. I was dead. Yes, of course I was dead. But I'm alive. And what's more, I'm alive 
forevermore. And it's, it's easy to forget that the living God is not just up in heaven controlling the universe. He's actually on earth by his spirit, working, 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 24-7. He's among us. He's among us. Jesus said, where two or three have been literally led together into my name, I'm there, I'm there. Welcome, Lord Jesus. You're here this morning, and we're so grateful you're here this morning, Lord. The living Lord among us. If he wasn't here, I wouldn't want to be here. But he is here. Presence of the living God among you. And also, they were made aware of the power that God was going to exert on behalf of his people. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out these various enemies you're going to have to face as you go into the promised land. He is going to deal with them. He is going to drive them out. Of course, we've touched many times on the authority of Jesus and the authority he gives to us and the fact that we can expect God to be adequate to meet every opposition we face. Never underestimate the power, the evil, the meanness, the nastiness, the cruelty of Satan. He's a dreadful enemy. But the living God among us is more than a match for him. And we in Jesus' name likewise are able to contribute to the breaking of God's enemy's power. Because, for example, in Second Corinthians we find the Apostle Paul speaking about spiritual warfare in these, in these terms. He says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. We don't use bombs and things. We don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, on the contrary, they do have divine power, supernatural power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now it's not just in spiritual warfare against the enemy generally that we exercise this kind of authority. We do it in that area too. But you see, even in our own lives, the enemy tries to get a foothold in our lives. And if he gets a foothold, he'll turn it, if he can, into a stronghold. So he has a strong grip on our lives. And where does he want that strong grip on our lives? <coughs> Up here, in our minds. If the devil gets into our minds, into our thoughts, we know what happens. We tend to go a bit adrift spiritually. We start hmm, being a bit careless spiritually, not reading our Bible, not praying, not bothering to come to the meetings and so forth. The devil is influencing our thinking. So we have to be quick to demolish these strongholds. If you should never be getting to the stage of a stronghold in a Christian's life, but sometimes it surely happens. I've seen it happen. But we have authority in Jesus' name to capture these thoughts. It's like chasing wrong thoughts around and saying hey you come here I know what they're up to get out in the name of Jesus and start thinking godly thoughts again amen the presence of God the living God among you 
the power of God he will certainly drive out the enemy the promise of God oh, verse 13 verse 13 as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan the water flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap the promise of God God promised it would happen and it did as simple, as straightforward as wonderful as that the natural giving way to the supernatural you see once we become Christians we have a new dimension to our life before we become Christians we have minds we have wills, we have emotions but our spirit is dead hmm. and then the spirit of God comes and gives new life to us makes our spirit come alive we're born again of the spirit of God we've got this whole new dimension operating in our life and it's far more powerful than the natural one so it's important that we make room for the supernatural that's why for example Paul says to the Galatians live by the Holy Spirit involve the Holy Spirit in your daily life as a, as a matter of your ordinary way of living ah so the supernatural is operating within the natural realm and changing it ah alright the ministry that would be recognised the ministry of the leader the message that was received which was very encouraging and the miracle that is recorded it commenced when faith was exercised because we're told that as soon as the priest's feet touched the water of Jordan the water stopped flowing now in fact it was harvest time and in harvest time the Jordan was always in flood humanly speaking these priests could have been washed away as they went into that swollen river but they weren't it commenced when faith was exercised as soon as they stepped out in faith into that swollen river instantly the water flowing downstream stopped flowing no more water came like a tap was turned off and the water that had come down below just drained away oh that's a miracle I've never seen that happen that's a miracle and it commenced when faith was exercised when these men did as they were told and walked into that swollen river think of the miracle in Cana of Galilee the first miracle our Lord Jesus performed at the wedding feast the wine supply failed and the host and hostess would be distinctly embarrassed but the mother of Jesus was there and she said to the servants whatever he says to you pointing to her son whatever he says to you do it and the mother of Jesus observed her son saying to the servants see these water jars over there Fill them, with, fill them to the broom, fill them full of water. Okay? So they made the effort, did the job, filled the water jars full of water, and then Jesus said, Now pour out some of that stuff. And they poured out water? No. There was no water. It was all wine. And it was first class wine. A miracle. And it happened when? 
when a step of faith was taken. If these servants had said to Jesus, oh, don't talk rubbish. You don't expect us to pour, pour water in there and get wine out, do you? <laughs> they never seen the miracle. Faith begins, faith begins a miracle. Faith opens a way for a miracle to be received. It commenced when faith was exercised and it continued until the purpose of God was achieved. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the ark stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until, until the whole nation, that was an awful lot of people, had completed the crossing on dry ground. It continued until the purpose of God was achieved. And God does not perform miracles to entertain us. He performs miracles to meet real needs. He has certain things he wants to achieve. And from time to time, in his wisdom and his mercy and his grace, he decides to give revival to his church in a particular area to advance his work in that nation. So let's go back to the key text in the verse, in that chapter, verse 5. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And to consecrate or sanctify means to set apart for holy use, i.e. for God's use. You remember that wonderful prayer Jesus prayed before he went to the cross? It's there in John chapter 17. I find myself going back to it again and again and again. It is so wonderful. And he prays for himself in the first part, and then he's praying for the disciples he's going to leave behind. And he prays to his Father to protect them from the evil one. Then he prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So in these couple of verses, we learn that being sanctified involves the word of God and the blood of Jesus. Jesus said to his father, this is one reason why I'm going to the cross. I sanctify myself that these, my disciples, may be truly sanctified. Well, if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, if he hadn't gone to deal with our sins and suffer that agonizing death as he experienced, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be saved people. We wouldn't be Christians at all. He sanctified himself. He set apart his precious body for holy use that we might be sanctified. And he calls us in turn to sanctify ourselves. God does part of the work, we do part of the work. It's our cooperating with God. We're sanctified by the blood of Jesus, set free from our sins, made holy, and also kept holy by the truth of God. In Hebrews chapter 13 we find the writer at the end towards the end of that saying in verse 12 Jesus suffered outside the city gate 
to make the people holy through his own blood to sanctify us by his blood let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore some people try to define holiness in terms of what we don't do what we don't say what we don't think that's a very laborious task and it's not the best way of going about it the best way to define holiness is not to focus on the things we are not to do because that may very well make us want to do them the best way to focus on holiness is to focus on Jesus Lord I want to become more like you you are wonderful, you are terrific, you are faithful I want to become more like you Lord go to him that's the way to keep holy feeding on his word drawing nearer to him as life goes on one final scripture for you 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says to that particular company of believers may God himself the God of peace sanctify you through and through in other words no half measures a thorough job a complete job is that what you want this morning? Is that what I want this morning? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body, that leaves nothing else, be kept blameless, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, it's not too hard to get that kind of life. It's not all up to you. He says, he who calls you, the one who calls you, God is faithful. He'll do it. He'll do it. Just like these Israelites camped on the wrong side of the Jordan River. God was going to get them into the promised land. But he wasn't going to carry them over one by one. They had to go through that, what had been a river, now a dry riverbed. They had to move in faith and in obedience. They had to cooperate with God. It was as simple as that. And it worked very well. <laughs> and you and I have a kind of funny habit of complicating simple things, don't we, sometimes? No, it's not complicated. It's just hearing from God and doing what He says. It's a good way to live. Don't you enjoy living that way? I do. Hearing from God and doing what He says. What is God saying to you folks this morning? Maybe saying certain things to one or two of you individually. Maybe saying something that some of your senses for the whole fellowship. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Make sure you are living a holy life. Make sure you're as close to Jesus as you can be. Make sure you're as fully surrendered to God as you can be. For tomorrow. That uh, may not mean Monday morning. Maybe next month, next year. Sometime in the future. God will do amazing things among you. He wants to do amazing things. He loves doing amazing things. Because it takes amazing things to make his people all that he wants us to become. Let's go for it. Let's pray. Father, help us in the stillness to respond in our hearts individually, personally 
to what you've been saying to us this morning. If you are planning something very special for some of us individually perhaps or for the fellowship as a whole will you just keep stirring us up keep drawing us closer to Jesus help us to avoid all compromise help us to do what your word tells us to do to hate all evil and to press on to know the Lord Jesus in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship if need be of his sufferings we ask it in Jesus name Amen